0: Uh, If you're just joining us, we've been doing a a series on David and we've gotten through a lot of the good stuff in his life. And last week we we talked about uh, David's uh, adultery with Bathsheba and how he killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah had him killed. And this begins uh, sort of a spiral downward in David's life. Uh, It's kind of the beginning of the end. And this chapter picks up right where we left off. Uh, Nathan is the prophet of the Lord. He's come to, uh, with God's word to confront uh, or convict David. Uh, it's an important moment. But I want you to see in this, and I'm going to take some time to, to point this out to us, is that God's heart is to forgive and to love broken people. That's his heart. His heart is to love broken people, people who give themselves over to sin or the consequences of their sin, as David has done here. But as we look at this, you will see how God is very at work in David's life, even in a moment that looks very, very dark. Now, this passage has sort of three sort of three movements, and uh, those sort of those each of those movements is sort of the way the, the sermon and the passage are kind of going to go together. The first uh, is Nathan's story that brings conviction to David. So you get this parable story this conviction moment. And then it moves to this moment of confession as David has heard the story and responds. And finally, moving from conviction to confession, we see hints at God's redemption. In fact, you'll see them a little further on. I didn't have Charles read them just because it is a bit of a lengthy passage. So from conviction to confession to redemption, and this, you can see in this pattern, how God's heart is very much to love and to forgive us, even in in a very difficult part. Of David's own life. So does that make sense? That's kind of where we're headed. So the first one is conviction. This is sort of verses 1 to 12. This will help if you have your Bibles open. If you kind of slide your, slide your eyes over those first 12 verses, this is that parable. And, uh, and then Nathan's kind of response to David. And as you heard Charles read this, as you take a look at it yourself, think for a moment about a time in your life where someone kind of called you out on something how does that feel? Not very good, does it? And often our response when someone tells us that we're wrong, comes at us, questions what we're doing, our response is often what? Okay. Anger, we become defensive perhaps, or irritated, or we, you know, we, we make excuses, whatever it might be. But when conviction comes, comes lovingly, or with an eye towards redemption behind it, an eye towards restoration behind it, it becomes easier to, to repent, to say I'm sorry, and to seek forgiveness. The way in which that message comes to us matters a great deal. For instance, uh, this is very different from David, but there are times where I have to discipline Rowan, my son. There he is. Uh, he's only two, but he's a two-year-old. And there are times in his two-year-old life where he does things that we go, no, that's not good. And so we might take him aside and we have to try and explain to him that this wasn't good. And sometimes he doesn't get it at all. We just have a little time out. But with the, with the no of what he's done, with the conviction of this is wrong, there also always has to come from us. But I deeply love you. This was wrong. Okay. I'm sorry. Good. Right. I love you. Carry on. And that changes the moment. I mean, he knows he won't look you in the eye. He's like, nope, 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 I don't want to, nope, 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 you're gonna look at mom? Nope, I don't wanna look at (laughs) mom. But with that no, as a dad, I want to say, this was wrong, but I still love you. And those two have to come together. And if they don't come together, if I'm always just saying, well, it's all okay, and I never say no, that's not helping him. That's not really parenting him, actually. But if I always just say no to him and never also tell him I love him, that's also abusive, right? So the two come together in good discipline. The two come come together, pardon me. So this is Nathan's task here. Very different circumstances, of course. But he wants to lead David into a realization of his sin, but not so that David can just kind of be thrown aside somewhere, but he wants to lead him back to God's heart, back to forgiveness. And Nathan does this in a really kind of masterful way. Did you notice he doesn't, he doesn't show up and just start yelling at David? Did you notice that? He doesn't just come just sort of, you know, conviction kind of flying at him. Like, you idiot, what have you done? Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't start beating him over the head with it. What he does is he invites David uh, to kind of give his wisdom, his input on a kind of a civil dispute. Here's a story about this thing that happened. What do you think as the king? And this was pretty normal. The king would often hear stories like this. Some sort of issue that might have happened. And he'd have to judge. He'd have to kind of make a discernment. Well, this was good. This was not. This is what should happen to this guy. This is what should happen to that guy. And that's why David, uh, at the end of this this passage in verse 6, the the passage about the parable, verses 5 and 6, he gives a response. Well, this was bad. This is what should happen. This is what the king does. So Nathan approaches David in a way that will make David engage him. I think this is really interesting. He comes to David with a very serious task, but he, he approaches it in a very specific way. Because the key is not just for David to hear the content of the message. The key for David is not just to hear, you need to repent. But he also needs to, to have David in a place where David is willing uh, and open to receive what God would still have for him. Or he's open to repent, but he's also turned his heart towards God. And so this approach matters, matters a lot. Uh, In fact, this is often the case in a lot of life. The way in which we say something sometimes matters as much as what you say. The way in which you do something matters as much as the thing in which you do. So very, very important. So David is being told, but it also matters the way David is told. And Nathan uses a story used as a parable. Parables are perfect for this. Parables are the kinds of stories where you're kind of going along, thinking it's going in one direction, and suddenly you realize, oh no, I'm, it's about me. Oh no. <laughs> Wait, what? Really? Jesus is a master at this, right? He's often telling parables to reveal to people what God is about and the kingdom of God. If you think, for instance, about the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? We often talk about it as the parable of the prodigal son. But the son who, who scorns his father and his older brother and he, he gets his inheritance and he just squanders all of this, all of this nest egg of money, right? Just, just spends it all entirely. And then he finds himself at the end of his robe. He says, I'm going to come back to my dad. I'm going to repent. And maybe he'll make me a servant, but I have to go back, right? You know the story. This is the, the short paraphrased version. And, and the this prodigal son is coming, and the father sees him, and the father runs to him, and, and the son begins to rehearse his, his uh, I've sinned against heaven in your sight, you know, he's been rehearsing this in his head as he comes, and the father just kind of embraces him and says, it doesn't matter anyway, you're home, we love you, we're gonna celebrate, start at the barbecue, right? Here we go, it's very, very good. You think it's about the prodigal son, but the passage ends with a question about the older brother, right? And the older brother is given this decision. Is he going to join in the celebration of the one who is lost? Or is he going to be holier than thou and talk about his own righteousness? How well, I never did that. I never scorned. I never sinned. I didn't do all that stuff. And the parable ends and Jesus leaves it hanging. What's the, what's the older son going to do? It's the parable of the elder son more than the parable of the prodigal son. What's the elder son going to do? And suddenly the audience realizes, it's about me. Am I willing to let other people be saved and forgiven and redeemed by God and celebrate with them? Or do I think I'm really something because I haven't done what that person did? And it's a conviction of the heart. This is what Jesus, he's a master at it. And this is what Nathan does here, right? He says, here's the story. Here's the story. And David listens to the injustice of the story. Did you catch it? There's a rich man that has a lot of sheep There's a poor man that has this one sheep that he really, really loves. The rich man has friends from out of town come in, show up unexpectedly (laughs) for the weekend, and he says, "I'm not killing my, I'm not having a barbecue with my sheep. I'm going to go take my neighbor's sheep. It's, It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. This is it's it's ridiculous how terrible it is. It's so blatantly unfair, right?" So David enters into this kind of religious self righteousness, right? If you look look at verse five with me. He says "The David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, here he is sort of, you know, invoking God's name as he's completely, you know, ignoring uh, and, and... As God says later, you've you've kind of hated me, you've hated my name, right? So David's not in a place to really say this, but as the Lord lives, here he goes, very self-righteous here, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So here's David, Uh, he's caught in the parable, he has no idea yet, right? And then Nathan sort of drops the bomb, so to speak. Or does the mic drop? Do you know what the mic drop is? It's when you sort of say the, say the thing that, uh, you know, kind of seals the argument, ends the whole argument. and Then you drop the mic. Kind of like, well, it's, all, it's over. It's over, right? This is what Nathan does. He drops the mic. You're that man. David, you're the man. You're the man. God's given you so much. He's given you so much. And look at verse 9. He says, "Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife." Uh, Bathsheba, being kind of parallel, similar to the you, to the to the lamb. So this brings up, this is a, what, a, what a shock, eh? You're the man, David. It's about you, and this brings a, a sudden kind of gospel focus to David's heart. Right? You're the man. Sin is never this abstract thing. Sin is always about specific people. You and me. You're the man. I'm the man. It's us, folks. We're the person in the story. We're the one that's sinful and deserves to die. Right? You're the man. I'm the man. Friends, if God is convicting you of sin, whatever it might be, hear his heart. He convicts you because he loves you. Just like I gave the example of me disciplining Rowan. I do this because I love him. But there's things that he's heading towards that will hurt him. Things, if I let them go, could kill him. And this is God's heart for you. That there's, there's behaviors or things in your own life, sin that you give, give into, which leads to your own hurt and potentially your own death. And so God, as a loving Father, says no. Don't do it. I want, this is a conviction of love. I hope you see that. He calls David and he calls us back, back to life. And this is important too, if you ever find yourself in the position of, of feeling you need to kind of tell someone about what they did wrong, convicting someone, like, you know? And sometimes this is legitimate. Say, say you're a parent and you're talking to your kids or, or it's in a church context and someone in ministry has really gone off the rails, whatever it might be. This is my job, sorry. I'm oh, good Lord. And, uh, and so but the call here is never to just sort of ring the person out, but to approach the person with God's love, to be honest about what's happened, but with an eye towards restoration, right? So there's a kindness and a patience that we need to have, even as we deal with one another and disappoint one another. Because guess what, folks? We're all sinful and we're all people. Unfortunately, the church is full of people. You know, if it wasn't people, we'd be all right, but it's full of people, you know. So we're just a mess. We need Jesus. This is about all it is. But there's an eye towards redemption that we need to have when we deal with with sin in our own lives and sin in each other's lives. It's just so, so critical. So the parable does its work, right? David's caught in it. He gets this blinding gospel moment of realizing his own sin. But there's not, uh, there, it's not without an invitation to grace, right? God doesn't want to just destroy David. He loves him. So he calls David back to himself. So, so this moves then from the initial conviction, right? Hearing God's word extended to David or extended to us. And then it moves to confession, which is a responding to God's love for us. And, and this is the confession. Did you see it? Verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. He doesn't romanticize it. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't go on and on and on about it. He just says, I've sinned. And Nathan responds in verse 13, the Lord's put away your sin. You're not going to die. It's so so simple, uh, but so poignant. I've sinned. The Lord's forgiven you. The Lord's forgiven you. Friends, Christian confession is not a, it's not a drudgery. And I think I mentioned this last week. Confessing our sin is not a beating yourself up. It's not that. It's not a guilt trip. But it's coming honestly and openly to the Lord as sinners. And then receiving his grace and redemption for us. This is what we need, friends. This is what we need. We need this time and time again to be reminded that though my sin is terrible and bad and I need to get it out of me, I can come to the Father who who has promised to cleanse me and forgive me. Friends, this is so good. So good. We don't have to make God willing to forgive us. You don't have to make God willing to forgive you. He already wants to forgive you. He already wants to forgive you. That's his heart. That's his heart. But it's God who's, who's working in us to be willing to seek his forgiveness. That's what's going on here. So sin is not the place for, for accusation so much as it is the place of salvation. When I have a sense of my own sin... I then have a deeper sense of the need I have for God. When I understand the depth of my own sinfulness, I then understand the depth of need I have for the love of God. Being honest and truthful about my own sinfulness, not not going over the top, but being honest about what it is, brings me to an honest place of openness and receptivity for the Lord. And David realizes more than... More than the false pleasures he he's had with Bathsheba, and more than the idolatry of self, which is what he's done with Uriah. He needs God. Friends, I need God, you need God. It's us. This is us. The sin might look different, but it's us. We need God. Yeah. And Jesus' work on the cross, friends, it brings God to us. Brings God to us. Now this passage has some hard consequences, doesn't it? This is not very fun. It would be nice if this was left out. Hey, but it's not. (laughs) Here it is. Here it is. Sin has consequences. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me, please. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I'll take away your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. That's really terrible. It's not good. What you did in secret is going to happen in public. And this is is a prophetic word about what's going to happen with David's son Absalom. Absalom's going to kill his half-brother Amnon. This is the sword rising up in David's own house. And then Absalom's going to take and sleep with some of David's concubines and wives out in public, on the rooftop. So is a prophetic word about the issues that are going to plague David's own house because of what David has done. Serious Bad, bad show, bad show, and the consequences of, of David's uh, lust for pleasure and lust for violence with Uriah uh, have, have effects down the generation that his sons live out what they saw on Uh So it, it's a hard go, it's a hard go, and not only that, but the baby that is pregnant with dies. And so you get uh, in verses 15 now, 15 to 23, which we didn't read. This is when the child dies. And David goes into a period of mourning, uh, prayer and fasting. And this is also a sign of his repentant heart. He is, he is grieved about the sin and the consequences of the sin. So it's hard. It's hard, folks. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not a, well, you're forgiven and none of it matters. It does matter there's consequences, but it's not without hope, as we will see. So David, David has to live out the consequences of his actions. Um, it's difficult, this is difficult, and it, it's, it's magnified more so because he's the king too, right? Uh, so it may not be that if uh, all of our sins are suddenly gone from secret to public, that might not always be the case, uh, but it could happen. That could happen, that the things that are kind of seeded in your heart, that you keep to yourself, can find themselves uh, elicited out in our outward actions. This is just kind of how our bodies work, what we think and what we imagine, we start to live out. And so this is what happens for David. But David is not far from God's redemption, even in all of this, and God's transformation. So we've moved from the conviction of Nathan's story, the parable story that brings David back to his knees, which is the place of confession, so from conviction to confession, now I'm going to point out God's redemption in all this, because we need to hear that, don't we? After grieving, after grieving the death of, of this baby, in the, in the passage that we didn't read, now this is 15 to 23, Uh, you can kind of skim over that if you want to read it, read it later this afternoon. But the baby dies and David rises up and he eats some food. He looks after himself and returns back to his life. He returns back to his work and to his life as a king. And the servants go, why isn't he still grieving now that the baby's actually died? David was grieving because of the baby being ill and he's petitioning before the Lord that the baby will get better and the baby dies. And then David kind of pulls himself up and kind of goes back to life. And the servants go, well, what's up with that? And David says, well, it's, it's happened as God would said. It's terrible, I don't like it. Uh, but God calls me to carry on with my own life. He calls me to continue to walk Uh, out my life before him interesting hey so he doesn't kind of stay in this place of of wallowing Um, look at verse 23 that's awesome but now verse 23 but now the child is dead why should I fast can I bring him back again can I bring the baby back again no I'll go to him he's not going to return to me David has a clear understanding of, of life and death at this point Interesting, hey? Interesting to read this as as Christians who believe in the resurrection, uh, what all that entails. But David David understands what's happened, and he, he begins to carry on with his life. Now, look at, with me, we didn't read this, but look at verses 24 and 25. David comforted his wife Bathsheba, his wife Bathsheba, so he's married her, went into her, lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Does that ring a bell? If you know your Bible at all, that should ring a bell. Solomon, ding, ding, ding. The Lord loved him, sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What's this all about? What's God doing? Why does it end with, right after this point, now we go back to a war story. Verse 26 picks up with Joab fighting at Rabbah and all this stuff. but, But if you hold verses 24 and 25, what does that have to do with all this part of chapter 12 that we read? Why end there? Why end on that point? God takes an adulterous relationship and from it brings about the heir to the throne. Not only that, not only that, which is a good thing. Remember, that's fulfilling the promises that someone, an heir from David's house is going to be on the throne forever, right? Israel's waiting for this. It's important to know, well, who's the son going to be? Well, we know it's Solomon, God takes the adulterous relationship and brings the next heir, the one who's going to fulfill his own promises, out of this thing that was really sinful and bad. But not only that, if you follow the lineage of David and Bathsheba down for a thousand years, you'll find yourselves coming to a little boy born in a stable in Bethlehem. God takes a relationship that that began with lust and murder and violence uh, and sin, and he's woven it and transformed it and forgiven it, and he's made it a part of his own salvation story. God takes this, the lowest moment in David's life, the darkest moment, the moment where David was farthest from God, God takes it and forgives it and redeems it and makes it part of his plan to bring Jesus into the world. So Bathsheba actually doesn't become this this woman that David had an affair with. She becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. It's amazing. This is that surprising grace of God's redemption. Friends, he takes the brokenness of our lives. He takes the brokenness of David's life and He makes it into something beautiful. Something that actually reflects uh, His glory. Reflects His glory. So friends, if nothing else this morning, hear this. This is the gospel for us this morning. God can take your, your poor choices. God can take the disasters in your life, the thing that you are, are most guilty of, the thing that you lament the most about your past. He you can take your, your screw-ups uh, and, and all the mistakes that you've made, all of this, and by his grace, he can work out his redemption in your life and transform what was awful and terrible and sinful and ugly into what's beautiful and grace-filled and full of his glory. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And so the passage that is, is horrible and dark and kind of depressing in some ways ends with this glimmer of hope that God will take even the worst of us and weave us into the story he wants to tell and bring us into connection with the Lord. That is amazing. It's amazing. He takes David at his worst and brings it into, into his salvation and his hope and his redemption. Incredible. It doesn't mean that God condones the previous actions. It doesn't mean God ignores what happened. Obviously, there was consequences, but God will transform the ugliness and the sin and the death in our lives into beauty and grace and wholeness because this is what he does yeah. this is what he does, this is what God does so where where are you this morning, is there something, is there something in your own past that you lament, is there something that you're going through right now that you're finding very difficult, is there is there sin perhaps that you're struggling with, is there something of the heart, something of habit that you continually go to that's that's driving a wedge between you and the Lord, then I would suggest hear his conviction. Hear the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life. Move to a place of confession and repentance. And then let God surprise you with the way he wants to redeem the brokenness in your life and use it for his glory. Let him surprise you. He will. He will surprise you. There's this great song by the band All Sons and Daughters, if you know them, fantastic says I'm a sinner if it's not one thing it's another I'm caught up in words and I'm tethered in lies you are a savior you take brokenness aside and make it beautiful mm-hmm. this is David it's our story too it's our story too right. and we see this transformation perhaps best at the, at the cross right? the disciples thought the cross was a disaster Rome thought the cross was a joke But God takes the moment that looks the darkest for all of humanity and transforms it into salvation for the whole world. And so the cross is not a defeat. It's a victory. Mm -hmm. The place of Jesus' glorification is as he rains from a tree, as he dies for us. This Mm -hmm. is what God does. God convicts us of sin. But he invites us to confession. He doesn't end there. He doesn't leave it there. I think sometimes we leave it here. If we, if we leave off at one of these points before we get to the redemption, we've missed the gospel. If you just hear conviction, if all you hear is, well, the Christians just have all these rules, it's kind of legalistic, you know? They're just kind of after you all the time, or in my own heart, I just feel like God's after me. That's not the story. That's, that's a different God. That's not my book, it's not this God. If you stop at just the conviction, you'll always feel like you're never good enough. If you move from conviction to confession, you will, you will feel you've come back to God, but, but you won't feel a sense of forgiveness. But if you move from conviction to confession, to receiving God's redemption and grace, that's where he wants you. That's where God wants to come and restore your life, bring you hope and healing and salvation. That's what he has for us, so don't stop somewhere along that way. Hear his conviction. Hear the Holy Spirit, even now, convict you of what's gone on in your life. Maybe there's something even this week that you need to come and confess. But having confessed, open yourself to the grace and the salvation and redemption that God would have for you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Uh, Father, uh, David's story is filled with these moments, Lord, where we can look at our own lives and see ourselves here. And so many of us could easily be told that we are the man, we are the one uh, who's who sinned against you. We are the one who's gone and strayed. Uh, that's that's given in uh, to evil, the desires of our own hearts, Lord. We are the we are the one. And yet, Father, in this passage, you call us from that place of conviction to a place of confession. So Jesus, this morning, we come and we say, Lord, would you forgive us? Cleanse our hearts today, Lord. We give you these things that weigh us down, burdens, Lord, that seem very hard to carry, impossible to carry, the sin that so easily besets us, Lord, the things that we feel so guilty about and so torn about. Lord, we give these things to you because your shoulders are wide enough to take it. And Lord, we confess, but we confess knowing that you, you love us and your heart is to restore broken people with your love. Lord, you restored David here. And so we, we too step into that place and say, Father, take the brokenness in our lives. Take these moments that we're we regret so much. And instead of making our lives defined by our evil and our sin, We want to be defined and known by the grace and the life that you give us. So, Lord, we give you these things this morning. And we pray that you would begin to work out your redemption. Lord, transform in each one of us here this morning. Transform our lives, Lord. Take the moments that are dark and bring them into moments of your glory. Lord, take us who are broken and sinful. I don't know why you love us so much, Lord, but you do. Lord, take each of us this morning. Lord, we're just people, and you know it. When we say, Lord, we receive your forgiveness. Now help us to walk in the newness of life that you call us to. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.